the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll do the best that we can to answer. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. Once more, that's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send in your questions that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, One button says call now and you'll be connected directly to. um, How will God judge a person who once led many to Christ and yet later fell and actually rejected God and died rejecting the Holy Spirit? We've talked about rewards in heaven for what we've done here on earth. Would God take into consideration that person's actions? You know, Sam, these are questions that that we don't really have any answers to. Um, No real Christian. Now, we can fall away. We can fall into sin. uh, We can go through difficult times. But the way your question is, is, is written, say they rejected God and died rejecting the Holy Spirit. Well, if in fact... They died rejecting God, uh, that's rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, then they're not going to be in heaven, and the rewards is the last thing that they need to worry about. Um, you know, it's a hard thing. We, we all know people that at one time appear to be sold out for Jesus, you know, and they would do these works, they shared Jesus with everybody, they were excited about what, what they had found out they, to be true, uh, and and yet they just sort of lost it. So the question theologically is, did they ever really belong to Christ? John, First John chapter two verse nineteen says, they went out from us to demonstrate that they were never part of us. And John was specifically referring there to to Judas and those who were like him. Judas had the appearance of a real believer. We could say that Judas is the guy in your question uh, because Judas cast out demons. Judas healed the sick. Judas heard everything Jesus ever taught and saw everything that he ever did. And all of the the other disciples turned apostles really believed that Judas was genuinely a part of them. And yet he proved who he really was. And I think this is the thing that we have to understand. This isn't about once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation. This is about were you ever really Jesus's. And while people can fool us, Nobody can fool God. So just based on the information that you've given me, Sam, um, this is somebody who is never a Christian. You know, I actually have known and read about um, men who were evangelists. Billy Graham, of course, tells the story of a 
a man named Charles Templeton, who was a contemporary of Billy Graham's, an evangelist who would pack stadiums and preach with fire and brimstone, and, and, and literally hundreds and hundreds of people got saved. Um, but then he did exactly what you're suggesting. He not only fell away from God, he fell into sin. And he lived the rest of his life absolutely convinced that there was no God, that all the things that he'd once taught so confidently were not true. And uh, all I can say is I wouldn't want to be him. On that day he stands before Jesus where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So is the punishment going to go lighter on him because he led people to Christ? The answer is no. Too much is given. Remember this principle always in our Bibles. Too much is given much is required, and, and the emphasis there in the much is much more is required. So the people who know and are used by God, who fall away from God, are far more accountable than somebody who never accepted Jesus in the first place, who never understood anything about God at all. So, um, you know, Sam, these are just the kind of things that we have to pray for, ask people um, to pray for people that we know like this, uh, that's just the way it is. It's a sad, sad thing, but it is true that people really do turn away from God. Amazing thing. Here is a question from Jake. Pastor Owen, what is the difference when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He spoke of that often. Well, Jake, what Jesus was doing, and in pri- uh, primarily what you're, you're doing is you're referring to the... Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and first part of chapter 7. Uh, and Jesus was just illustrating a principle. Now, we have to, again, remember the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry. I say that a lot because I'm here in the church and we're in the Gospel of Luke. I don't know how often or if at all I've said that on this radio program, but, but if you don't appreciate the Jewishness of his ministry, you'll never be able to comprehend the message. And what Jesus is doing in those cases, he's telling them that this is um, um, the way you've always heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. When Jesus then would say, but I say unto you, what he was doing, Jake, is raising the stakes. And by raising the stakes, here's what he's trying to communicate. Look, if you want to get to heaven without believing in me, remember the rich young ruler Good teacher, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. And then he asked, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Well, if you want to have eternal life, you have to be so good that even keeping the letter of the law perfectly won't be enough. You have to keep the spirit behind the letter of the law. You've heard that it is written, Thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother and call him Raka, a fool, then you're guilty of murder. What Jesus is doing is just raising the stakes, trying really hard, Jake, to demonstrate the impossibility of anybody getting to heaven by doing enough good. So that's what Jesus was doing. You know, Jake, one of the things, and you didn't ask this in your question, but but whenever you see in the gospel accounts people talking, the crowds talking, we've never heard someone teach like this. We, we've never one heard one who teaches with such authority. That's what they were talking about. The other rabbis in Jesus' day, uh, they wouldn't quote um, um, the, the, the Bible. They, they'd quote other rabbis. They, they'd be asking a question. They'd say, well, Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamaliel say this and and Jesus would say, no, I don't quote anybody else. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And in so doing, he was giving himself the ultimate authority of judgment over anybody and everybody who's ever lived. That's why, Jake, it's so important that we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, because we can't be good enough no matter how good we try to be. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I had somebody who uh, emailed me um, at the end of a, a message, uh, the day after a message, um, not long ago when I was talking about God's standard of perfection. It was, I think, Friday night uh, in our Hebrew study. 
And one of the things that we have to understand is that heaven is perfect, and to get there you have to be perfect. And since none of us can be perfect, Jesus is the only one who can give us his perfection, and that's precisely what he's done on the cross. So thank you very, very much for the question, Jake. Here, let's go to our friend Reuben in Seguin. Reuben, thanks for calling. Sorry we missed you yesterday. Oh, no, that's okay. I just, you know, when I called, I didn't look at the time, and then I had to leave, and I don't have a, a car in my radio, so, I mean, my radio, I don't have a radio in my car, so, but really quickly, um, uh, I I just, oh, man, my thoughts are everywhere right now. I just I haven't had a good week, and, you know, uh, just been crying a lot. Um, now, okay, about sin, uh, no one. I mean, I'm, even you, without, you know, with all due respect, but no one, no one, no one, no one, no one is going to be perfect. Uh, That's right. If I, if, 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 I, if I understand the Bible correctly, we are not going to be made perfect until we get to heaven. Is, is that correct? Well, um, only sort of let me explain, Reuben. We're, we're, we're made perfect. We were made perfect. Romans 3.24. We were justified freely at the cross of Calvary. That means we were made perfect. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So positionally, we're perfect. Now, practically, in this flesh and blood body, um, we're not going to be made perfect until we're with Jesus, but every single day, the point is to be more like Jesus than the day before. The Bible calls that the process of sanctification. That's a process that that every day, by the power of God's Spirit, uh, we are made more and more like Jesus. Now, we have to obviously cooperate in that. We have to partner in that. And the way we do that is by being in the Word, knowing who Jesus is, and then walking according to His will, walking in obedience. But that is a lifelong process. So practically, as earth would see it, uh, no one will ever be without sin. Oh, these flesh and blood bodies forbid it. Even the Apostle Paul, as we've talked about before, uh, wasn't anywhere close to being perfect. Uh, But practically, uh, that's practically. Positionally, however, we're perfect the day we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, I emphasize that, Reuben, because too many of us, we focus on our sin instead of on our position in Christ. And I think if more of us would enjoy the positional perfection that we have, this this righteousness given to us by the Lord, I think then we would try uh, harder and we would try with more success to live up to that position. And the point is we'd end up hating our sin so much that there'll be less and less sin all the time. Let me say one other thing, and then I'll let you uh, finish your question, Reuben. One of the problems with walking with Jesus, the more you are like him and the closer you get to him, the more sin you're aware of in your life. You know, I got saved. I, I, I barely understood what sin was. But after walking with Jesus now for 28 years, if I do something or if I say something that's out of place, um, my heart breaks because I've, I've, I've sinned against my God. And um, I think that's just a function. I had a pastor here on staff for a long time who used to say, you know, the closer you get to Jesus, the blacker the gray areas in life become. And that's what we need to remember. Okay, so with that, Reuben, once you finish your question. Thank you, sir. Um, no, you answered that question, Brian, but the next thing I have is why why does it seem like, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm praying wrong, and when I'm praying, I ask God these questions, and then after I ask Him these questions, I tell Him, Lord, please forgive me, because I don't know if that was appropriate to ask. And, like, what I'm talking about is, like, you know, um, I ask, why don't I feel you? Why, why don't you speak to me? You know, why, why do I feel like I'm so far away, or like you're so far away, or I'm so far away? 
I don't do anything. I have all these thoughts that come into my mind, and I every day I fight them. Every single day I fight them. And I don't know if I'm just focusing too much on the thoughts and not letting God speak to me and not hearing Him or what I'm doing wrong. And then I keep thinking, you know, what if what if He is taking me out of His presence? What if He's taking His Holy Spirit away from me? Which I that's the thing that scares me the most because I don't want to lose him. I don't want to lose him. I don't want to yeah. be without God. I don't want to be without him because I am nothing without God. I am nothing on my yeah. own. Ruben, I want, you, I, want you to listen. No, I want you to listen real closely, okay? Really open your heart and let the Lord speak to you now. You're approaching God as though you have to keep a certain standard to please God. You know, our Bible says that he is the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. And you're approaching God like he began your faith, but you're the one that has to finish it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And you're acting like he began the work, but you are trying to complete it. And see, the, the problem with that is we get in our flesh when we're trying so hard to experience God or to hear from God. We, we approach Him in our flesh on the basis of our own merits, and we have no avenue of approach on our own. So what we have to do is we have to understand that in those times when God seems far away, all you have to do is open your Bible and God will speak heart. You don't have to get goosebumps. It doesn't have to be an audible voice. You don't have to have one of those um, top of the mountain experiences. But these are the times where you need to exercise your faith and rely on what you know for sure, what the Bible tells you, instead of relying on how you feel. Now, this is a hard thing to understand. It's harder to explain, but I'm going to do my best here because what you have to do is understand that this is part of the sanctification process. This is all part of maturing in a relationship with Christ. You know, baby Christians need goosebumps. When I was a baby Christian, I'd go to three, four church services a Sunday. I'm always waiting for the next big thing. I wanted goosebumps. I wanted to feel the presence of God. Um, Reuben, I don't need that anymore. You know, when Paul and I first met 49 years ago, um, I needed to call her all the time. I needed for her to tell me that she loved me. I, I just needed constant reinforcement because I was insecure. Our relationship was so young. But now, after 49 years together, it doesn't matter what she does. It doesn't matter how she feels. I know this woman loves me. Well, how much more the God who guaranteed our salvation? So it's not a matter of, of feeling God. It's a matter of knowing that he's there. I will never leave you or forsake you. The enemy will lie to you and say, well, you've walked away from God. There's too much distance between you. You can say, you're a liar because I know that the enemy is the source of those thoughts because Jesus said he will never leave me. Or forsake me. Think about you and the disciples, those who would be apostles for a moment. You know, when Jesus gathered them together in the upper room and he finally convinced them that he really was going to die. He really, really was going to go away. He looked in their eyes and he told them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now, that didn't fix their feelings. That didn't take away their sadness. That certainly didn't stop the devil from pounding them with guilt and conviction, or condemnation better than conviction. Um, but Jesus said, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going away, but I'll send another one just like me to you, the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. So those are the things that we have to remember 
in those times of doubt. Now, uh, I know I told you this last week on on a, a slightly different vein, but you know the thoughts that come into your head, you're not responsible for. The thoughts are brought in by an outside source. You've got an enemy who wants to pound you, wants to destroy you. So here's what you got to do. you got to hold on to what you know is true and dismiss what you know is not true in the way the authority that we know what's true and what's not true is given to us in the Word. So Reuben, I know you've been really digging into the Word. The enemy's not happy with that. He is going to fight and he's going to resist. So instead of crying to God, why don't you just try talking to him? Just in normal conversation. Don't pray in some Christianese voice or language. Just talk to him. When you have one of those moments where you don't feel his presence, say, I know you're here. Here's something that I do every morning, and I've told you this before, Reuben, but I'll give you just a slightly different spin. When I go out and say today, Lord, of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. Um, um, on days like we had this morning, um, we get them a lot around here where there's lots of clouds and it's rainy. I, when I say good morning, Jesus, I'm always looking at the sun. Well, I went out this morning, there was no sun. Skies were dark. And so here's what I do. I say, Lord, I know you're there. Now, I know, I know Jesus is not the sun. S-U-N. But it's such a powerful picture for me. I say, I know you're there. I can't see you, but I know you're there. And in the same way, Jesus, I know you're with me now. And then I just start talking to him. So, Reuben, our walk of faith is not walking by feelings. It's not walking by sight. It's walking, trusting in the promises God has made. And if you'll hold on to that, I promise you, you're going to win this battle. The enemy once had you, now he's lost you. He's not happy. And so he's going to do his best to upset your walk. Don't let him do it. Hold on. Do me a favor tonight, Reuben. Read Romans chapter 8. And just highlight the promises that are yours in that chapter. If God is for me, who can be against me? That's, that's just one of them. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Just highlight those promises. And they're, they're repeated so often that you can't miss them. And so the next time doubt comes, the next time the enemy attacks, the next time your emotions get sort of all goofy, and go back to those promises and say, I know you're here, Lord. I know you're here. I know you love me. And I'm going to stay so close to you. The enemy has no chance. So, Reuben, thank you for calling. I hope that's the case. And we will, of course, keep you in prayer. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We're inside three minutes now for this half of the pro. Can I ask you all for your prayers for tomorrow? Uh we shared last week that we had a, a lady in our church, 92-year-old Cuca Perez. Uh, she is just an inspiration to me and to so many others. Has been so faithful serving the Lord. She's been here uh, for 22 years. Um, uh, tomorrow she's having surgery. And uh, surgery is always um, hard on people when they, when they get that old. Uh, and uh, frankly, I'm simply not ready yet for her to go be with Jesus. She'd probably tell me, you be quiet, Pastor Ron, because I'm ready to see Jesus. But I'm just not quite ready for that yet. So uh, if you all would keep Kuka Perez in your prayers tomorrow, we'll give you updates as best we're able as the, the family gets them to us tomorrow. I've got two minutes, so let me get to one more question this side of the break. Here is... Um, question I can do for from Matthew. Pastor Ron, what is your favorite resource for studying the end times? I have a lot of them, Matthew, but I think my favorite is uh, John A. Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Uh, two things. He's got a book 
uh, about the rapture of the church, um, but he's also got a commentary on the book of Revelation that are both sort of New Testament classics. So John A. Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, and, and you can't go wrong. Uh, there's another great book. It's, a, it's an old Christian classic uh, called Things to Come by uh, a writer, a preacher named Dwight Pentecost. Uh, and that's a good one as well. But uh, you can't miss with Walverd. He is a, a great resource. Uh, and he really makes you think. And there's a whole lot of wonderful application in, uh, in his stuff as well. Well, that's the end of our first half of the program. We have 30 minutes left. The phones uh, are open, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our program. We have 30 minutes left. 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question. My wife was unfaithful. Do I have to divorce her? Uh, I'm sorry for your pain. Um, I can only begin to imagine how painful that is. Um, let me tell you the good news. You don't have to divorce her. You're free to. Uh, that's something we have to understand. You know, We know God hates divorce, yet that doesn't mean that you can't divorce. There are certain things that a spouse can do that so horribly violates the marriage covenant that God gives you the freedom to choose. So anonymous... Uh, you can prayerfully choose to do what you feel the Lord wants you to do or what you want to do. Don't let anybody tell you, God hates divorce, you can't divorce, you're stuck. On the other hand, if you're getting pressure from the other direction, well, she was unfaithful, you need to, 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 to divorce her. You don't have to do that either. You have an opportunity to be free from the marriage or you can be free to remain in the marriage. And you know, reconciliation is always God's first choice. It's not always our first choice, Anonymous, but it is always God's first choice. So if you can forgive, if you love her, then make the effort to work it out. Now, there would be, biblically, a couple of things that would be required. One, her repentance would have to be genuine. You know, so often in the time that we live in, you know, we, we get online with people, we meet people on social media platforms, we start emotional affairs with them, and we think, well, it's, you know, all of that has to stop. She has to understand how she's hurt you, she has to understand how she's hurt the heart of God, and then she's got to be willing to come into the relationship, the marriage relationship, in, in a way that pleases the Lord. And I, I would... I would tell her two things. One, all contact with the person that you cheated on me with is over. No contact whatsoever. And we're going to go to church. We're going to get some counseling. We're going to spend some time together in the Word. And we're going to rebuild this thing. And I have seen Anonymous. In fact, I have a, a dozen couples in my church. And that's just a general number. It's probably too, too small a number. Um, but but marriages that have thrived after infidelity. So you don't have to divorce her, but you can divorce her. You're free to do what you want. If your wife is unrepentant, if she is making excuses, or if she is blaming you, well then, that would be for me a sign to divorce her because she doesn't accept the responsibility for what she's done. So I hope that helps, Anonymous, and I'm sorry for what you're going through. Let's go to uh, Jacob calling from San Antonio Online 1. Jacob, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, Ron, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, 
a quick question. So I was uh, reading Daniel, I think, 12, the end-time prophecy. Um, talks about the 1,290 days and then the 1,350, I think it is, 1,335 days, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But then I was trying to match that up with, with Revelation when it talks about the, the woman and the beast and the 1,290 days there. So I was wondering if you could uh, say, is that exactly the same thing? And also, where does that lie in to the millennial reign of Christ? And I'll take that off the air. Okay, thank you, Jacob. Great question and good good observations. Um, you know, nobody knows for sure um, uh, what it is. I think we can make a really, really good guess, though. Um, the, the 45 days that, that, that are in question here seems to me to be the time. You know, there's going to be uh, the, the, the supper of the lamb, that's the birds who come in and clean up the, the, the earth. I, I think that's going to be the time it takes to clean up the, 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 the remnants from uh, all of the, the judgment and all of the death. Uh, I, I think it's going to be the time that Jesus is beginning the process of establishing his kingdom. You know, he's not just going to, um, uh, we're going to serve, so he's not just going to, snap his fingers and all of a sudden everything that's there will be there. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to take ownership of his kingdom. So uh, the first thing that has to be done, he calls the birds from all over the world and they devour the bodies of the dead. Um, we're not going to have dead carcasses coming into the kingdom uh, or into the millennial age. So uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable, Jacob, in saying that that is a cleanup of sorts, um, a time of preparation, and then when that's all done, um, uh, you know, there's the, the, this is a worldwide thing, so when that's all done, then his kingdom will be established. So I think that's the difference in the dates, and it seems, at least to me, very clear that that's the case. So, Jacob, thank you, and good observation. Most people don't catch that. Here is a call from R.W. into the station. He says, a few weeks ago you said Kenneth Copeland was arrogant. Is that good for me to say that as a Bible teacher to my students in my class? I'm basing this question out of Romans chapter 2, where Scripture talks about passing judgment. Um, R.W., a couple of things. One, um, um, if you have any discomfort at all about saying that he's arrogant, um, then, then I wouldn't do it. Anything not of faith is sin. Romans fourteen twenty three says, uh, "I've listened to so much of Kenneth Copeland's teaching that I can see the arrogance." So I'm not judging his heart because I don't know the man. But what, the the best way for a Bible teacher to approach it, especially if somebody in your class is talking to you about Kenneth Copeland or or teachers who are like him, um, I, I think the thing that you can demonstrably say is that he is a false teacher of the worst kind. He has had many, many opportunities to repent and has refused to do so. He has made a fortune, a veritable fortune, on the backs of, of poor widows and the elderly, um, people that want to be rich. Uh, he gives them hope, but it's false hope. And those things you can say without passing any judgment at all on his character. Um, I think if anyone listens to him, they're going to see arrogant pride, which seems to be a consistent hallmark of false teachers. Um, But um, as a Bible teacher, I think, especially if the question is asked, you know, in my Bible teaching, R.W., I never um, mention people by name. Um, I'll I'll talk about the, the things they teach and some people will be able to recognize who I'm talking about. But I don't mention them by name. But if somebody asks me directly a question, and I get this almost every week at church, somebody will come in and say, well, I go to this church. What do you think of that church? Uh, I'm going to tell them. I'll tell them the truth and love. I'll tell them um, what I think they need to know. Um, but, uh, but I'm certainly not going to make it personal and bash people. Um, often I will say, um, you know, I'm pretty sure this guy is a Christian. I've had questions on this program that I deal with very directly. I get questions um, because we're in San Antonio about John Hagee. I get a lot of questions on this program about Joel Osteen. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure both of those guys are Christians. They're just really, really false teachers. 
So if I was to judge their heart, I could say, well, they're a false teacher, they're condemned to hell. I can't do that. But I can with confidence say their teaching is false and harmful to people. And Kenneth Copeland is one of those guys who is in a class beyond the, the two that I mentioned uh, in terms of the, the arrogance of his teaching and the, the, the consistency, the poor consistency of his track record as a teacher. So and when I used to, as a young Christian RW, I used to talk about people, talk, I would name names. And what I found out was that people weren't listening. You know, if I'd say a name and it was somebody they liked, um, they, and they hadn't been with me for a long time, so I didn't have any equity built up in our relationship, uh, they just stopped listening. And so when I changed that to get to that place where I was only talking about what they taught, well, then the same people would come to me and say, you know, I heard so-and-so say that. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So R.W., just sort of let the Spirit lead, and thank you very, very much for being a Bible teacher and being concerned about your students. I appreciate it very, very much. We go to the next question, 340-9585 for your questions. Juan says, will you talk about unity in the church why are there so many differences in what churches believe? One, there's differences in what churches believe uh, because while our Bibles are perfect, our interpretation of them is not. Um, we got a lot of flesh. We have people who are motivated by the flesh. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he says, so some preach Christ out of envy and trying to stir up trouble for me. Others preach Christ with a good heart. He says, whatever, I, I'm just happy that, that the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed. Um, in the church of Jesus Christ, um, unity matters. Unity in essentials. Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. And when somebody starts messing with that, they're no longer a part of the church they're apostate outside the church. That's heresy. Um, but it really doesn't matter so much about the differences. Are tongues for today? Some say yes, some say no. Uh, are the gifts of the Spirit for today? Some say yes, some say no. Uh, one saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Those are doctrinal areas where we can disagree, and we don't have to have unity in those things. And in fact, I think the lack of unity in those areas is a healthy thing for the church. Paul talks about the differences that must be um, to show who has God's approval. I think that's really important as we're workmen rightly dividing the word. Um, somebody who just comes up with a theory or comes up with a pet doctrine and wants to proclaim it and they really haven't dug into their Bibles and most of the time people that are teaching false doctrine the easiest thing to tell is that they don't really know their Bibles. They know about them, and they can quote scriptures, but they don't know the Bible. They don't know the context of those scriptures. Um, I think that difference in, in um, doctrinal unity is important. It gives people the opportunity, people who are really seeking the truth, to go find it. Um, I, I want to teach the Bible truthfully. I ask the Lord... Help me to be accurate and practical and simple. I want people to get it. I really want them to get it. Uh, so, so unity doesn't mean that we all agree on everything. But what it means is that we agree on the essentials. Now, we have churches now, uh, one, mainline Protestant churches, um, that we can't have unity with. Because those differences don't matter to them. Oh, just love people, accept everybody. If they're living in sin, that's okay. You know, we want to love them and rightly represent Jesus, all the while misrepresenting him doctrinally. So the unity of the church is unity in the essentials, unity in the necessity of being born again, unity in the person of Christ, who he really is. But beyond that, we don't all just have to get along. And I think, again, I'll say doctrinal differences are important. God has given us those who will really dig in the Word. God has given us the Spirit to discern what's true and what's not. 
people come to the Bible with all kinds of different motives. So our unity has to be in Christ. Hope that makes sense. Here is uh, Mark from Austin called the studio. Are there any church, early church fathers after the apostles who have writings that you'd recommend? Yeah, Mark, I would recommend most of them. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't goofy. Some of them, and, and, and I think this is a part of our education process. Uh, I, I think when we are uh, looking at the early church fathers, um, and, and you know, we, we, we have a sort of a misplaced sense of reverence for them. Now, I revere them for what they did. I revere them for the stands they took. But the one thing, an honest study of early church history will teach us is that people have always been wrong. People have always been wrong. And we can go into the book of Acts and we can see within the first few years of the church, after the day of Pentecost, um, false doctrine had been creeping in. We can look at the apostles, uh, or the epistles rather, of, of the apostle John uh, when he's fighting the, the, the heresy of Gnosticism. Uh, that's why John, who was with Jesus, was still alive. We see Paul writing to the churches in Galatia and Colossia, uh, um, babbling legalism, and, and, and literally people trying to make the, the Christian church Jewish and, and taking stands over that. So the, the doctrine of the early church fathers, don't look for it to be perfect. But read them. Chrysostom is a good one. And, and Augustine. And you're going to find them. Um, um, you're, you're going to find problems doctrinally with all of them. But remember, this was a new faith and it was developing and it would take a long time for people to have a grasp doctrinally on things that were contrary to the way they'd been raised. The early church was entirely Jewish. And then when the, 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 the Gentiles were admitted in, there was all kinds of conflict. And they would have to work those things out. You can read the creeds, the, the uh, Nicene creeds, and um, again, appreciate what they've done. But don't be moved, Mark, by their doctrines. And one of the things that we're gonna, you're going to find a, a difficulty you're always going to find people say, well, you know, the early church fathers believed this and they lived closer to the time of Jesus, so they must have been right. Well, that's what developed into the Catholic Church that we see today. That's what developed into all kinds of heresies. So, so read them for their historical value. Uh, appreciate them for their faith, the stand they took in this brand new faith that, that, that so many of them spilled their blood Four, but remember, our doctrine comes from the Bible, not from our early church fathers. Our doctrine comes from the Bible, not commentaries. So read them, enjoy them, learn from them, but be willing to pick out the faults in them too, because I think it's important that we we learn this lesson that that um, man has always messed up. And that's why being in the Word will put you on solid ground. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from David. He says, I think I'm called to teach the Bible. Can you recommend good places to start? Uh, I'm assuming, David, you mean good places to start teaching the Bible. Um, there are so many. Um, first of all, let your pastor know that you feel you're called to teach the Bible. That's always an exciting thing for a pastor. Uh, I do, uh, and we've been doing this uh, well over 20 years. I, I don't know how long exactly, but, but almost from the beginning. Uh, I have been doing a twice-monthly pastor's discipleship class um, where, where I go deeper and I'm even more direct uh, with with the people in that class, um, um, talking about not only the word but but church and philosophies and and all kinds of things. Um, so 
So, so when somebody comes to me and says, I'm called to, 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 to teach the Word, I had a man in my church, David, uh, not this week, this is only Tuesday, so it would be last week. Um, he made an appointment with me. He's been around for 12 years or so. And, um, you know, we have very little direct interaction at the beginning when they first got here. He and his wife, we spent a lot of time together. There was counseling and some other things. Um, but but um, I hadn't seen him for a long time, uh, not up close like that. And uh, so we made an appointment, and he said, I'll talk. And, and here's what he wanted to say. He said, you know, Pastor Ron, I just don't want to do anything anymore except share Jesus with people. I'm in my Bible all the time, and, and, and I think I'm called to teach the Bible. And I was so thrilled for this guy, so thrilled. And I'm going to tell you what I told him. After having told me, go to your church and let him know. Um, sit in on as many Bible studies as you possibly can. This is a wonderful calling. It is a wonderful gift. Uh, and you need to really invest time digging in. The second thing is you got to love your Bible. When I say love it, I mean you got to devour it. And then look for opportunities to teach. I'm going to give you two right now that um, are really, really important. The first is look for a nursing home. We have a, a man whose pastoral calling has been made clear to me over the last six or eight months. And he came to me and said, um, um, you know, where can I start teaching? And I said, um, try a nursing home. He was in the healthcare business. And I said, go to a nursing home. They're always looking for people. And I mean, you're talking to people who are literally in their last days. So go to a nursing home. They're always looking for people. The only thing is be consistent. You can't go and then kind of get grossed out, the smell in, in nursing homes and the people that you're talking to, they fall asleep on you. And, um, you know, some someone can be quite needy. I said, you know, develop pastoral skills but also teach the Bible to them. They need the Word. And that's exactly what he's done. And he's just been so blessed, he and his wife. Uh, and and uh, I, I've shared this on this program before, David, but that's where Paul and I started. Our very first ministry together was a nursing home. The other place that you can start is with kids. Uh, kids are not the B team. Kids, I'm going to say this, it sounds so silly when I say it, kids are our future. But, but offer to teach the kids in your church. You want to talk about being humbled? Bible teachers need to be humbled? Uh, teach kids. They'll humble you. They'll ask questions. They'll fall asleep. They'll say things that don't have any connection with it. But you'll also see some of them start to get it. I'm not talking about telling them Bible stories or playing with them. I'm talking about teaching them. That's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. And uh, I promise you, not only will your love for the Word grow, but God will reward your faithfulness, and He'll take you on that journey to get you to what He knows is your ultimate calling. Bible teachers, David, need to teach the Bible. You can have friends come to your house, do a Bible study, unsaved friends. Tell them you're going to do a Bible study, you want them to come. I promise you, the Lord will use all of it and teach you a whole bunch of stuff in the process. God bless you, David. Um, Philip says, Pastor Ron, should one be a Greek or Hebrew expert to fully study our Bibles? Philip, the answer is no. Now, obviously, if you were proficient in both languages, it would help. Uh, but here's the great thing about being 2,000 years in the history of the church. We have had giants in our faith who were Greek and Hebrew experts. And we can sort of stand on their shoulders and we can build what we're doing on the foundation they've already laid. Um, A.T. Robertson is, is, uh, is sort of the expert uh, regarding the Greek New Testament. Um, he's got he's got a volume of books called Robertson's Word Pictures in the New Testament, and it is 
an indispensable part of the study for any pastor who is um, um, really serious about about teaching. Um, and see, because because he's gone before me, I don't have to be a Greek expert. I'm not. Uh, I will once in a while say the Greek word says or means this or it's in the continuous present tense. I think those are important things to help rightly divide the word so that your 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 audience can understand. But you don't need to learn Greek or learn Hebrew because the work has been done. You're going to be diligent to check the work. That's where a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses get in trouble. You know, they're so-called Greek experts, add words, and, oh, no, he's a Greek expert. No, he's not. So we need to know. Uh, a guy like J. Vernon McGee, who was a Greek or Hebrew, um, was proficient in both languages. Um, you know what? You'd never know it. He sounds like a country bumpkin, but he was a brilliant guy. So no, you don't. What you need to do is have all the tools available that now are available with the click of a mouse. And I promise you, God will speak to your heart. So study, um, work hard, and use the tools that have been provided. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Um, You're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, Please pray for Kuka Perez. um, Surgery tomorrow. I get to go to lunch with our staff here at the Academy tomorrow and our staff appreciation luncheon at the end of the year. Pray for them too, they're heroes. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.